We got uh, chapter 8. There's quite a few verses in chapter 8. Maybe I'll take it in chunks this time. I don't usually read from this version of text, but I'm going to just because it so dramatizes the, uh, especially the first part of this chapter. Um, One individual here said that Pastor Josh kind of went a few places. Uh, Just a refresher, chapter 7 of um, Acts I believe is uh, is a chapter that contains a large content of Stephen's um, of Stephen's words and speeches and addresses to the synagogue or the Jews, um, the Aramaic speaking Jews, because we're at a time in terms of history. Just as a reminder, right, we're at the beginnings of the nascent church of Christ, the beginning of the church, and it started in a synagogue because that's where Jesus went, and the people of God met and congregated in synagogues. And so at the time of Christ, his life, when he went to church, he went to synagogue. It talks about that in scripture. It talks about him opening up the scrolls of the Torah and reading from there. It talks about the scraps that he got into with the different uh, communities within the Jewish faith. We've talked about the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Essenes. These are all players within the beginning of the church that we are all a part of, the body of Christ. And so Stephen was at that very beginning of the church and therefore right in the mix of the major, major challenge that the church faced because of how radical Jesus was, how radical Jesus is to this day. And because of the radical nature of what Jesus did when he came and spoke to the people of God, there were things that occurred that continue to this day because the church is still alive in the same way that it began 2,000 years ago. And some of what we see in the book of Acts is an ability to try to help us to understand how strongly connected we are to the people of God way beyond that, beyond the 2,000 years. Beyond the 2,000 years when Jesus came to walk this earth, to fulfill the prophecy that occurred thousands of years before, Acts holds the reality where the church is alive and becoming new and changing people's lives, but also making people furious. Furious to the point of death. And so you have this amazing drama in Acts where you see the work and beginnings of the church and you see and know that it is the work of the Holy Spirit throughout the book of Acts. And chapter 7 is where Stephen is toe-to-toe with the people who are furious.
furious because of what he believes in, furious because of what he has to say, furious because his life was so transformed by the person of Jesus Christ. And if you felt that transformation in the past, if you feel it now, if you know that it might be something coming your way in the future, you know that there is something about that experience of knowing what it means to be transformed by Christ and knowing the story and the truth of what the transformation of Christ has done to the universe. It is hard to withhold that. It is hard not to find a way to share that. It raises up passion in one's spirit because it is so personal. The experiences that we have as people of faith are in fact experiences that can never be found in a movie theater. If you've seen a concert where hundreds of thousands of people have been packed into a stadium with their hands lifted up, moved by the spirit of music, that's an experience. But it does not compare to the life-changing, radical transformation that we have in the person of Jesus Christ. So it gives you some idea of how someone like Stephen can be entrenched in the realities of his culture and his time. Clearly not as complex and sophisticated as ours. Nowhere near as complex as ours. The realities of the traditions in the time of Stephen were probably much more clear, much more entrenched. We live in a pluralistic reality. We live in a reality that has been immersed in things like science and philosophy and psychology and economics and politics that are layered upon layered because of the fact that we are a species that continue to evolve. And because of that involvement and because of the fact even now of globalization, there are so many challenges and layers to us understanding who we are as people principled on the truth of the gospel. But Stephen was toe-to-toe with rabid, rabid individuals about their religion. And we have them now. We have them now in our world, people that are so rabid and zealous about their faith that they will sacrifice their own lives, often in mismanagement decisions from young, young ages, but oppressed maybe to the point where they feel like they have no other decision than to make like that. But we don't need to get confused with people's choice in sacrifice. What we have in the story of Stephen is, in fact, the first, the proto-martyr, the beginning of the Christian church found this man at a time where he began a martyrdom that continues to this day 
standing on the principles and bedrock of that transformation that I just talked about. I got way too preachy right there, and I'm sorry. I'm just still in that testimony mode. So these are the words actually at the end of verse 7, chapter 7. As the rocks rained down, Stephen prayed, Master Jesus, take my life. Then he knelt down, praying loud enough for everyone to hear. Master, don't blame them for this sin, his last words. Then he died. Let me go up a little further. At that point, they went wild, a rioting mob of catcalls and whistles and invective. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, hardly noticed he only had eyes for God, whom he saw in all his glory with Jesus standing at his side. He said, oh, I see heaven wide open and the Son of Man standing at God's side, yelling and hissing. The mob drowned him out. Now in full stampede, they dragged him out of town and pelted him with rocks. The ringleaders took off their coats and asked a young man named Saul to watch them. Stephen, tangled with the people that hated what he said. They hated it so much that they drug him out and killed him. The story is amazing just in and of itself. You could spend so much time on this idea that the first martyr ever for the church of Jesus Christ who gave his life for standing up to the truth of what Jesus gave to him, stood there and said words that only infuriated the people that were killing him, but came from a sincerity, a sincerity of spirit that was anchored in love, anchored in truth. It says that there was a glory that showed upon him that they saw. It takes me back to the story of Moses when Moses back way, way thousands of years before was called by God to lead people out of slavery, called by God to do something that he was so dearly afraid of that he wanted to make sure who he knew was going to be with him. And in response, God said, I'm going to be with you. So still. Sorely afraid, he said, I want to make sure, I want to see your glory. And God said to Moses, you better hide yourself in the cleft of the rock. You hide yourself there, and you want to see my glory? Well, I'm going to give you a little peek. And the story says is that the living God moved past the cleft of the rock where Moses was hiding, and he could only see the exit of the glory of God. And here we have Stephen, the martyr of the church, kneeling, being pelted with rocks, hitting him everywhere you can imagine. And the glory of the Lord shines upon this man. 
I think, quite frankly, it's good to know what some of us have been through for the sake of the gospel. Because Stephen's our brother. Stephen is the brother of all the martyrs that have existed in this church that we're all a part of. I don't know that I could do it. I hope you don't have to do it. But we got someone who's a model. I'm going to move now into chapter 8. That set off a terrific persecution of the church in Jerusalem, right? So it's a mob mentality. They just killed Stephen, and now it's a riot. The believers were all scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. All that is but the apostles. A little human touch to the story of Acts and Stephen. Good and brave men buried Stephen, giving him a solemn funeral. Not many dry eyes that day. Remember at the end of chapter 7, they laid some coats at the feet of a man named Saul. Here he comes again. And Saul just went wild, devastating the church. Entering house after house after house, dragging men and women off to jail, forced to leave home base, the followers of Jesus all became missionaries. Just pause for a moment. That's a little bit of melodrama, right? But what's a good Pentecostal church without a little bit of dramaturgy involved? House to house, men and women being drug out of their house simply for what they believed in. Saul went wild, fueling this reality. There's a statement here that I'd like to point out. If I can only find it again. I'm just going to call it out. Here it is. And Saul just went wild, devastating the church. Uh, I really enjoyed reading this book by Ernest Hemingway called Old Man and the Sea. Any of you read it? It's a great book, small little book. I like small little books. Ernest Hemingway told the story about a man who lived in Cuba. And had a lot of years under his belt. Lived in a fishing village. There's always a story about getting the big fish. Ernest Hemingway tells the story about this old man who believes in the myth of the big fish and goes out on his own to take on the challenge. 
The old man in his dinghy is out on the open ocean, and he catches the big fish. It's a great story. The fight between the old man and the fish is epic. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Salt and air cuts and burns. The fish is caught. It's tied up to be taken back to shore. Now, I hate to give it away, and so I'm not. What I'm going to talk about is that Ernest Hemingway talks about this old man, and he talks about the severe beating that he takes. Severe beating. Almost takes his life. But what he points out is he says, I was devastated, but not destroyed. And that wells up within me a spirit that I see in these words that talk about the ravage that ripped through the early church. And it says literally that the church was devastated not destroyed, clearly not destroyed, because we stand here and sit here tonight as a continuation of an event that was an attempt to destroy something, but could not come near that. I think about what's going on in the other part of the world right now with Ukraine. Now, I'm not going to try to say that it's synonymous with what happened to the church. But what we certainly see is a devastation of a country. It's horrible to look at the scenes that are occurring. Unprovoked bombardment. Devastation that is so hard to imagine. But what do we keep hearing from this? It's pretty, this is this, this president and the people that are interviewed. They are not destroying the spirit of these men and women who believe that they need to be present to fight against this devastation. What do we take with that? I know I have been devastated in life. I know that I've been devastated in life physically, and I know that there are many times when I am caught in a place in life where my, 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 my being, my, my thoughts, my emotions, my spirit feels devastated. But I know I have never been close and will never be close to being destroyed. And so if there is a way for you and I to hold those two words as a part of our life, that you would know that whatever you might have gone through, whatever you and I might be going through, whatever you and I will ever go through, you may be devastated. And hang on. It'll hurt. It's brutal because life, in fact, is 
You might want to run and you might want to hide and you might want to self-medicate and you may want to find entertainment and maybe a little bit of that is important and okay. But please understand that we have been given the spirit of Stephen. We have been given the spirit of the beginnings of the church that exists 2,000 years from them to this day with testimony after testimony after testimony that proclaims that even in death, we will not be devastated. That is a truth that is yours and mine. And when you are facing that, may you and I hang on to that truth. So real, so important. Now, the beauty of this, as Saul, and I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go fast forward real quick. You guys know all who Saul is, right? You guys know who Saul is? Yeah? You know who Saul is, right? Anybody who doesn't know who Saul is, Saul, this, this guy who's going wild in the streets and telling people to pull people out of their houses, who's identified as the ringleader for the stone throwers that just killed the man, finds himself riding down a road, down, down the road on a horse, and somehow miraculously... God slaps him so hard that he finds himself on the ground and blind. And the voice of God saying to him, why are you persecuting me? I don't know what it would have been like to have been Saul right then, but I do know what happened to him. And for those of you who know the story, know what happened to him. But his name got changed right there. His name changed from Saul to Paul. And what happened to Paul's life is through the smack that God gave him divinely that threw him on his back. He got up and realized that he had had a face-to-face encounter with the living God. And from that encounter sought out the people that he was killing and began to hear the stories and the fellowship that occurred in his life transformed and changed him into the pivotal man who helped us to be able to have the type of Christian faith that we have today. Most, if majority, of the New Testament, all written by Paul. All written by Paul. Is that not ridiculous? Is it not a crazy testimony about our Christian faith that a wild man set out to kill and destroy and defeat this emerging presence of the living God? Paul called himself the least of the apostles, the worst human being. And in that horrible nature, recognized the power of the living God that changed and transformed and gave him a purpose that was couched no longer in authoritarian control, mismanagement 
of some truth that he had, of an attempt to squash and destroy innocent human beings, a man changed and entrenched in the living God that gave him a love to be able to communicate to the churches that emerged from this experience and move beyond the walls of Jerusalem. That's the Saul that we just read about. That's a story that I could listen to and hear over and over again. And partly, what's cool about that is if you think you're out there and you've got some kind of spirit of Saul in you, bah, all right, why don't you let God knock you off your horse? Why don't you let God do what he did to Saul? Are you so mean and wild that you're out there dragging people out and killing them for no reason? Oh, well, even if you are, so what? Look what happened to Saul. If you're here anywhere and you are hearing this, recognize that there is always an opportunity for the worst, most disgusting villain in life to be changed and transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. Ah, dang, how easy is it for us to get judgmental and righteous when we see horrible things, when we see horrible people, when people do horrible things to us. Yeah, and righteousness and judgment should get you strong enough to realize that you have no business being oppressed, no business being unjustified, no business being taken advantage of. Nor should you be, anyone be on the other side of that. Never should I be on that side of being an oppressor. Someone who's not listening for a cry for help. Asking for something. Even demanding something without the ability to know that there is a living God who changed a man like Saul, who changed a man and a woman like you and me, and who can change anyone in this life that we live. The beauty of this story is that the church was not defeated. The beauty of this story, there's so many layers, but things that we've always talked about when it comes to hardship. This is one of those pivotal moments in the history of the church or if you think about it, when people are being killed because of their statement of faith and their heart that's connected to God, there's probably some people who ran and hide, hid. We're still here. The truth of the matter is, is that whenever the church has gone through a hardship, it's always grown. These people scatter, right? They scatter. Now, those are the words of God long before that the church was going to be for the Gentile. So here we're talking about this new church couched within the people of God in the synagogue, the Jews at the time. Here Jesus comes, changes lives, changes the world, changes the universe. People get it just like you and I got it, just like you and I will get it again whenever we're in that moment and a transformation occurs and 
they're living out the promise that said it was not only that it was going to be for the Israelites and the people of God, but it was going to be for all people, all Gentiles. And that's you and me, brother and sister. We're the Gentiles, and we're here because of this act that caused the church to spread beyond the boundaries of Jerusalem and Samaria and Gaza. It went on and on and on and on. And so here we are maybe in a bit of a hardship at a time in the life of Mission Ebenezer Family Church. And it's not the first time that the life of Mission Ebenezer Family Church has gone through a hard time. We're here. We're still here and better for it. More mature, more grounded. You that have stuck it out, we're in it together. We're going through changes now. Pastor Josh is here. He'll give me an amen. I know, but we are committed to this church because it's where Christ has brought us, and we know that there is growth when it comes to time of hardship. Now, this is not just for the church and the body of Christ. This is the human condition. If you're going through a crisis, you will if you're not now, right? I think I've been around long enough to where those realities when you're a young kid, they tell you about how many are going to be doing this and how many are going to do that, how many won't be alive and how many will, and you go, what does that mean? That's kind of weird. Yeah, I've been around the sun a few times, and those hardships, yeah, I've gone through them. I haven't, I haven't, I'm not dead yet. I ain't dead yet. But there's close people to me that are, and that's a reality right? And I've been through hard times, you've been through hard times, and I know, I know for a fact hard times are in my future. I don't like that fact. It's just the reality about being a man who loves people, because God has called me to love people. And I know because I love people, and the way that I live that love out in my job, in my family, with my friends, in my church, that opens me up to hardship. That hardship's coming. That hardship is going to get to a point where there's going to be a crisis involved. Now, I know enough about life. I know enough about theology. I know enough about psychology that when I and you get into that hardship, you know what? You are in a prime, a prime opportunity for your ego to take a back seat, for your ego to be made small. When our egos are made small, when our egos take the back seat or the passenger seat, that is the golden opportunity for us to be immersed in a transformation that comes with those crisis moments. There is something about your and my spirit that is inherently a part of how you are made. You are not pill bugs. You do not roll up and die when hardship comes. You have been given a spirit, a generative force that God put into you because his spirit was breathed into you. You would not be here today if that were not true. Look at what you've made it through. Look at what you and I have made it through. We have a force within us that moves out, engages the world. Now, when that spirit meets the Holy Spirit, my gosh, that's Christ living in us. That's our ability to get through the crisis. That is the transformative moment. That is when we learn about who we are as a creation and redeemed individual of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And when that event occurs, 
you open up to the world in such a different way, in an amazingly different way. We live that. You felt it. I felt it. If you haven't felt it, it's there. It's coming. If you felt it, it's coming again. It's just a part of living the life of faith. Now, society, what are they going to do? They're going to try to bolster up your ego. They're going to tell you you can entertain yourself away from it. They can tell you to self-medicate away from it, right? We talk about that all the time. Why do we talk about it all the time? Because it's the world that we live in, and the fact is it's true. The spiritual warfare that goes on, whatever we call it, you want to call it demons? Yeah, they're real. You want to call it the world? Yeah, it's real. The cultural realities. We talked about lifestyle before, right? We come to the Lord with a lifestyle. And I don't mean about the clothes we wear or the kind of food that we like to eat. I mean those deep parts of our lives that are established by the way that we grow up, by the context that we grow up, by the things that we experience all the way from birth into wherever you are. Older adulthood, this guy right here now. Wherever you are, you come to God with a lifestyle and the whole reality about the church of, of, of Jesus Christ is to, to recognize that lifestyle and help you to understand that that lifestyle is broken and ultimately determined to die until you realize that the church and through the work of the Holy Spirit transforms each and every one of us into a whole new life. That's why we come here. I hope that that's why we desire to serve here. I hope that's the reality of why we want to be a voice to someone who's hurting. I hope that's a reason why when we're hurting, we're a person who hears that voice, whether it comes from God, whether it comes from another brother or sister who loves you and you trust and has the integrity to be able to share something or receive something from you. All of that's a part of just this beautiful life that we have. Oh, dang, it's hard. Man, it's hard. But it's beautiful when you think about what the church went through. We didn't even get through, I think, the first 12 to 20 verses of chapter 8. This amazing story about the life of the church. You and I are still living it. May we be, may we be blessed in that. May you and I be blessed in that. We'll close it out. I'll ask you to stand up as we... Uh, Go on into our Wednesday evening, and we do together, God, rejoice and say how much we love you, how much we are uh, blessed to have your word, and a great, great, uh, a great story. This is my story. This is our story. May we live in that. May we live in that as we leave and go our ways home, work, eat, rest, sleep. May we get up tomorrow with the ability to know that that story is ours and we live in that story. Thank you for this gift. In Jesus' name, amen.